0: In this episode, we have the rules guru back in the house as he tackles the evading rule and I give you some tips about world building as well as a cry for help. Welcome to the Mythras Matters Podcast, Season 1, Episode 33, Building Worlds and Evading Trouble. and welcome to Mithras Matters, a podcast dedicated to the Mithras rule set and all its supplements. As always, I am your host, Inwills, and welcome to February. To start this episode, I wanted to just quickly share with you all how well the podcast did last year. Twelve episodes were published with around 490 minutes of content, and thanks to you, Yes, you. It had 2,434 downloads. Wow. I must admit that when I offered to create this podcast, I never thought it would get past the first couple of months, let alone a couple of years. So thank you so much for all the support from the Mithras community. The top episode last year was episode 21 that was about social skills and passive blocking, and it has been downloaded 285 times. This was the episode that featured the first Rules Guru segment, and I'm so pleased to have Matt back in this episode to talk about evading. More from him later. And finally, thank you to you. If you live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you are officially the top city for the podcast last year. You downloaded the podcast 61 times. And before you say it, it wasn't me. I'm in the UK, but maybe my city will be top next year. Clicks the download button again. I hope you agree with me that these are great numbers and none of this would be happening if it wasn't for the fantastic community downloading the podcast and listening to episodes. So, as always, huge thanks to each and every one of you. Okay, before we pass over to the rules guru, I wanted to ask for some help. I'm not sure whether you will be able to help or how you will be able to help, but I desperately need some. I am having a real problem with animists. Now, first, I have to say that I really love the idea and concept of the animist, but as of yet have not managed to play one or create one effectively. You might be aware that I actually play an NPC in our current campaign and really wanted to try to make it an animist, but in the end left the realm of magic and made up Ulrich instead. So why are they causing me so many issues and why do I need help? Well, first, I have no idea what the end product is like when you are playing a high powered shaman. What? Benefits do you have? What is your role in the party? And how do you actually play? What are those key elements of the animus class or order? Next, I'm floundering at the character generation stage when it comes to spirits. In most of the other realms of magic, you have a starting number of spells, but I can't seem to find out how many spirits animists actually start with and what power or level these spirits are or even their type. And finally, am I correct to be worried that playing an animist um, when it comes to getting new spirits, I have this feeling that as soon as I get into spirit combat, I'm going to get possessed and my character's soul will be floating around in the spirit world while a bane spirit inhabits my body. Come to think of it, that might be a great idea for an adventure, but am I right in assuming this? You know, when the sorcerer or the theist gets a new spell, it's just a couple of days in the library. Does the animus really have to risk life and death by entering the spirit plane? So, can you help? It would be fantastic to have an episode on Animist. So if you are an Animist expert, then please do get in touch with me and help me um, in my hour of need. And remember, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, then why not just drop me an email or message me and let me know what you would like to cover? We are always looking for reviews or interviews with people. So if you are interested, you can email me at inwills at gmail.com or send me a message on the various forums I frequent, including the Discord. I mentioned earlier that the most popular episode was the one that we had the rules guru on talking about passive blocking so once i got this information i immediately got back in touch with matt to try and tempt him back to the podcast he agreed and i asked him to unravel the rule about invading over to you matt
1: Hi, I'm Matt Eager of Old Bones Publishing, Matt E. on the forums, and our topic for today is the evade skill. Evade is one of those resistance or saving throw type skills like willpower, brawn, and endurance that we use to see whether a character can avoid some consequence. Using evade does come with its own consequences, though, and we ought to understand them well. Now, remember, I didn't write Mithras, I've just been invited to share my own understanding of how the rules are meant to be used in actual play. Evade is a standard skill that every character knows. It is described on page 41 of the latest edition of the Core Mithras book. I'll go over those rules now, but I will paraphrase and mindfully change the order in which the book presents the material. Evade is used to escape from observed impending danger and can be used against ranged weapons by diving for cover, for example, avoiding traps, changing the engagement distance in combat, and generally getting out of the way of a potential physical hazard. It can also be used as a resistance role for certain types of magic. And the book goes on to detail the typical situations of avoiding missiles, thwarting a trap, evading a harmful spell, and maneuvering in combat. That last one really refers to both the outmaneuver and change range combat actions, which can be very important. Evade may also be used as a plain unopposed role in its own right. Trying to negate damage by leaping clear of a crashing vehicle is one example. However, note that if the vehicle is still under the control of a driver who is actively trying to run you over, then we're back to an opposed role of evade versus drive. When used in a standard test, plain success, not actually described in the book, means the character avoids the threat, while critical success ensures that the evader retains some form of advantage or composure afterwards, such as slipping completely clear of further danger. Failure usually means, when does it not, that the character suffers whatever misfortune they were attempting to avoid, A fumble means that characters left themselves wide open to the hazard, for instance, sustaining maximum damage from a trap. The effects of criticals and fumbles during combat are special. See the rules for evading in the combat chapter, page 103. Okay, let's move to that spot in the combat chapter. I paraphrase. Evasion attempts require an opposed role, That's important. More later. An opposed role of the attacker's pertinent skill versus the evade skill of the defender. If the attacker wins, the damage is inflicted as usual. But if the defender wins, damage is completely avoided. Whatever the result, the evasive gambit leaves the defender prone, usually requiring him to regain his footing on his following turn. If the winner of the Opposed role achieves one or more levels of success over the opponent, select suitable special effects as per normal combat. Evading may be made more difficult or impossible by circumstances, such as being helpless, entangled, or balancing on a ledge while scaling a cliff. That's up to the Games Master. So, use Evade when your parry would be ineffective, because your weapon is so much smaller than your opponent's, or when it is disallowed, as for ranged attacks, if you don't have a shield. Why not use evade all the time instead of parrying? Because even a successful evade leaves you prone, which means the fighting from the ground situational modifier in the table on page 101, makes your subsequent attacks, parries, or evades formidable. If you win a special effect though, you can choose Arise to avoid that penalty. Otherwise, spend an action point to regain footing on your next turn. Evade is a high-risk, high-reward proposition. If you are designing a character of the nimble fighter or dashing rogue type, you should definitely consider the combat style trait Daredevil in the big table on page 89, which reads, may use evade to dodge blows in hand-to-hand combat without ending up prone. That's a little vague, actually. What I'm sure it means is that a daredevil who succeeds with evade does not end up on the ground, but one who fails still does go prone. Note that when using evade in other circumstances, such as outmaneuvering or changing range, a failed roll does not mean that your character automatically ends up on the ground, although that could be true in a particular case. Your games master will let you know. Substitutes for evade. The assiduous reader may note that on page 44, the entry for the professional skill acrobatics includes this. Acrobatics can be substituted for evade if the situation warrants it. The benefit of this is that if the role is a success, the character automatically avoids ending up prone. That sounds great! So, why shouldn't my character, or every character, just choose acrobatics as the hobby skill during character creation since it's obviously better than evade? Because even though some tactic may be technically possible, that doesn't mean it fits with the character's concept and background. Work with your games master to see how it might somehow make sense in your particular game for your character, but if it doesn't, just accept that and move on. This question actually came up recently in the Mithras Discord. Depending on what your game's master judges reasonable, there might even be other substitutes for evade. For example, in the old Bone scenario, Savage Swords Against a Necromancer, the character Yulin is an entertainer who is, among other things, a talented dancer. So I included the following note. In many situations calling for fancy footwork, including outmaneuvering, Yulin may substitute her dance skill for evade or athletics. Back to using evade instead of parry in combat. We resolve an attack and parry sequence using a differential role, but we resolve attack and evade using an opposed role. This is an important point. A differential role is not an opposed role. The key difference being in an opposed role, there is a definite winner and a definite loser. Exactly one of each. In a differential role, there can be two winners or two losers or another combination. We use a different rule for attack versus evade because it's meant to be seen as an all-or-nothing attempt. Either the dodge works or it doesn't. We need exactly one winner and one loser, which is what an opposed role determines. Attack versus parry doesn't work like that. The core rulebook does not emphasize this difference, but it is there, and I do insist on emphasizing it because it is really important to understand how evade actually is meant to work. Got it? Wait, there's more. After resolving our opposed role for evade, we do go on to check the difference in levels of success and award special effects as if it had been a differential role. I think this is one reason why people might not immediately notice the difference between parrying and evading. I don't blame anyone for finding this a little confusing, but do trust me and reread the book many times to see what I mean. Using evade in combat is game mechanically different from using parry. The rules for deciding the outcome of an opposed role are different than those for a differential role even if you mix in special effects afterward. To sum up, a character uses evade to wholeheartedly lunge out of the way and avoid something bad, such as being surrounded, or a trap, a spell, or an attack that would defy parrying. When used in combat, evade calls for an opposed role, not a differential role, although special effects are awarded afterward. In combat, even a successful evade leaves the character prone. To stand back up, you may use Arise if you win a special effect, and even if you don't, there's still the Regain Footing proactive action. You may be able to substitute another skill for evade, such as acrobatics, if the game master agrees. Well, that's all of my time for today. I hope this brief discussion of the evade skill has been helpful. My concluding advice is, understand these rules before your character enters the fray. Game on!
0: That was a fantastic explanation. And remember, if there's any rule that you would like to see be dissected and unpicked on the podcast, then do let us know. And remember, there's always space for a second rule guru. If you are interested, then get in touch. If you've been following my content on YouTube, you will be aware that recently I published a video about why I consider the sci-fi setting much more difficult to plan for than the um, fantasy setting. And during the month of February, uh, my top five recommended skills for any budding game master will be published as part of my Gibbering GM um, video series. And just to let you know, don't forget that last month's Mithras video was all about crafting your own item. So do go and check that one out. But today I wanted to share with you my top three tips for creating your own campaign world, no matter which rule system you are using. So first up, my first tip is all about size I think too often we want to create as much of the world as we possibly can before we start to introduce our players and their characters into it. We want to look at all the cities, the rivers, the mountain terrains, as well as all the people, the races, the classes, the orders, and even the notorious people, conflicts and events. However, I would suggest that you don't start big at all. It is much better, I think, to start small. Well, in my case, tiny. Unless you run a very restricted campaign world, players are generally free to go and do what they want. Because of this, I tend to start at a village or town and provide the bare minimum for the players. For example, for my current Odess campaign, which is Fantasy Mithras, I created the basics of the town of Lindo. I didn't create it all, just outlined the areas roughly and constructed a leader called Count Bastion. From there on in, it was created on the fly or in between the sessions. The same with Voltaris42.7, my M-Space campaign. I just initially created the idea of Arid, the first town the group would be deposited at. I do think that sometimes we can spend too long creating and rather than actually playing. And it is while playing that I consider the world can continue to be created alongside the players, and this leads me on to my next top tip. Game masters are very busy people. I used to think that I was solely responsible for the creation of my campaign world. But over the many, many, many years of GMing, I've learned that I couldn't have been so wrong Although I have an overview of the world, I think it is my players that provide details and direction. As we are playing, the party always takes the campaign in different directions to where I might have thought it was going, and they quite naturally start to add to the campaign world. The start, the original start of the Odes campaign was an utter disaster. I had this wild and wonderful idea that was based on the location of seeds that when put together would destroy the world. I introduced evil forces, holy divine support, and even a great battle. However, sadly, the whole idea fell to bits because I hadn't actually included the players in the creation of the campaign. Eventually, things were going so wrong that I had to draw a line under the whole idea and reset the campaign. Since that point, I have encouraged the players to lead the campaign. I listen and observe in every session and pick up ideas that the characters will hopefully be motivated to engage with. But it doesn't stop there. I think each player is an expert in their class Because of this, I encourage discussions and creations with them. An example of this is a recent conversation that I was having with Mr. Pickles about his character Barterby. After his fantastic parrying and disarming of a foe, the link to this video is in the show notes, we started to talk about parrying and how his order could engage within this. Through many Discord conversations, we have developed Bartleby's religious order, the Order of Amriel, even more. And I've even asked Mr. Pickles to come up with names for these new divisions that we have created. So my second tip is we are very busy people as GM, not only with the game, but with real life as well. So remember, you don't have to do all the creation yourself you can delegate and also include your players in the world building process. And my final tip, don't be afraid of familiarity. We often think that as GMs, we need to create something that is totally unique. I actually don't think that is true. There is nothing wrong with using an idea from a film or another world. If you have watched any of the M-Space campaign we are currently enjoying, you might have noticed the similarities between the player's current home base, Arid, and the planet of Tatooine from the Star Wars franchise. I actually think that this supports the player's mental imagery when playing. It also allows them to act differently if your encounter is based on a similar situation from a film. I've often wondered what I would have done if I was Frodo stood on the edge of the volcano with a ring of power in my hand. Please don't judge me, but I think I would have gone for the power. Sorry, all you do-gooders, but I'm not really suited to being a hero at all. Just give me the power. So if you have any other tips and please do post them below this thread in the Tapper Talk forums, the links in the show notes below. Remember, it's always good to share. Plus, I'm sometimes desperate for ideas. So thank you in advance. And that's it. Another episode of Mithras Matters completed. Don't forget you can check out all my content by following my YouTube channel and the campaign areas of World Anvil. I really appreciate your support and do check out the Talk forums and the Discord. There are some great people there sharing their ideas within the discussions. So until next month, have a great month of gaming and I will chat to you all again in March. Until then, I hope all your opposed roles succeed and provide you with a well deserved special. Thanks for listening, everyone. See ya. Bye. content of this podcast is covered by the creative commons attribution 3.0 license so please give appropriate credit if you are sharing or copying any part of this podcast thank you